welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have our Chief Science Officer of the Tailored Coaching Method, that is Dr. Brandon Roberts, and we're going to break down July's research review, which we have been doing lately as a Q&A. So what you're going to get today is three specific questions where Brandon goes and finds at least one, if not more, studies for, um, and breaks down what the science says about said topic. And then I get to chime in, pick his brain, ask him questions live on the air, and then also share my experiences with the, the topic at hand in my coaching career. So in today's podcast, we are going to cover uh, whether or not flexible or rigid dieting is better for fat loss. So should we be following more of like a meal plan, like a static structured meal plan, kind of like a bodybuilder's diet, or should we approach this from a flexible dieting approach where we have macros and daily targets? Next, we're going to dive into whether or not it's harder for the body to store carbs or fat as body fat, which is a very interesting topic, something that I like getting into because I'm a huge fan of carbs. So today we're going to find out if I'm right, if, if, the, if the route of eating more carbs is the route you should take. And we're going to discuss whether or not the body can store carbs as fat just as efficiently as it can store fat as fat or if it's vice versa. Is, is a high-fat diet better for fat loss? We'll find out today in the answer of this question, and we, we take a detour with a lot of good dialogue on that one as well. And then the last question of the podcast is, does your body adapt to NEAT or non-exercise activity thermogenesis or walking, making your step count less effective at a certain point? So we all know that we can use steps as a strategy to burn more calories, improve aerobic health, cardiovascular health, stuff like that. Um, and it's a good way to approach fat loss. It's a really easy, lifestyle-friendly way to do cardio without spending and slaving away on the treadmill. We don't ever want to have a client spending hours and hours doing cardio if we don't have to. So what if they can just step more? Well, today we're going to find out if that's actually effective or if at a certain point it becomes ineffective and you're just going to adapt to it anyway. And, uh, and again, we take a slight detour like most of the questions so that you get more than just that specific question answered, but many things answered. Um, so you guys are really going to like this one. I'm going to drop both of our handles in the description of this podcast. That way, if you really enjoy this show, you can share it on your story and tag us both. My handle is at Cody McBroom and his is at brob underscore 21. Again, those are both in the description as well as the blogs of these topics. So we break these down into blogs as well. So if you would like to see the graphs, if you want to get the links to the studies, if you want to read about these studies and, and our opinions on it, uh, these are also going to be in the blog as well. And you can find that at tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash blog. Uh, and without any further ado, let's talk to the CSO of Tailored Coaching Method, Dr. Brandon Roberts. All right. So we got the July research Q&A. Um, I've been getting a lot of good feedback about these, so I think we're going to kind of roll with these, man. Uh, it sounds like you're having fun writing them this way, and I really enjoy having three different pieces that we can kind of bullshit on and go back and forth with, so it's really cool for me, too. Um, and it's just a good format to put a lot of information into a single podcast since we only do these once a month, so I think it works out great. Uh, but we have some really, really cool topics today, so I'm excited about this one. I have with me, as always, our CSO, Dr. Brandon Roberts, and he's going to be covering three different studies, um, all of which that are extremely applicable. Um, as always, we always try to do that, but I really feel like these ones really hit the nail on the head with the type of clientele we work with and the questions we get. So this is going to be a really, really powerful one for you guys. Um, but man, I'm going to let you kick it off with the first one. Uh, break it down for us. It's, is flexible or rigid dieting better for weight loss is the title of this. Okay, so I, there's not great definitions of these two terms, but you know we got to start with kind of a pseudo definition. Um, 
So flexible dieting would be like, I give you macros and calories and you have freedom to kind of eat what you want within reason, right? You're not gonna eat a bunch of Pop-Tarts and protein shakes, but within reason and kind of use your, your best judgment to swap out fruits or maybe have different types of meat or, you know, even protein bars and things like that. Um, so that's what we call flexible dieting. It's not that different. And actually in the literature, it's not really different at all. Like if it fits your macros, um, so the, the same types of things. And then, so that's one, on one hand, you have that type of dieting and then you have uh, rigided dieting, which is meal plans, right? If you think of old school bodybuilders, you know, my go-to, um, you know, your coach hands you a sheet of egg whites, oatmeal, chicken, broccoli, rice, fish, and there's like, I don't know, 10 things on it, right? And so that works. Um, and in the literature, there's a, a good bit of studies who that give um, like uh, weight loss shakes, so like the 800 calorie shakes, or just like all liquid diets or basically rigid diets. Um, and, and that's kind of something that people don't really think about. But they're kind of seen as, as bad in general. Like they're just not good for you. And the reason behind that is because way back in the early 90s, and I'm actually going through these studies on my Instagram probably next week or so, um, there's a couple of big studies done that showed people who had like rigid dieting habits um, were more likely to binge, um, to have eating disorders, to kind of rebound after a weight loss phase. And this brought in the idea that maybe some people just shouldn't diet. Like if you're going to have a rigid diet and only eat certain things, and then you're going to rebound back past where you were, should you even diet at all? Um, so there was a little bit of back forth in that the literature too. Um, so that's the, the kind of the basic idea behind flexible versus rigid. Um, real, real quick, do you think a lot of that is just psychological. And the reason I say that is because it's funny. Okay. A rigid bro diet, let's say bodybuilder diet. It is a rigid meal plan and chicken, oats, steak, rice. They break down the basics. And then you look at somebody who's pretty physically fit and into the stuff and they flexible diet and they basically eat the same stuff, but on their own terms. And it's funny because I technically flexible diet, but I also kind of follow a meal plan because I eat the same thing every day. I think the difference is, is that I'm choosing what I'm eating and therefore I don't feel restricted, right? So it's almost like a psychological behavior thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what it is. And when you look at these earlier studies, it's like there's there's people who can adapt and do make, basically make a rigid diet into a flexible diet, and that's good. That's what we call like successful weight, weight losers or whatever. Um, where they learn the meal plan and they're like, okay, I kind of know what my base needs to be, but you know, I'm going to have something else every now and then. Um, and I think that's one of the problems with people like hating on meal plans and hating on rigid diets is like, they definitely work mm -hmm. to an extent. They may not work with everyone. That's just like, like a ketogenic diet, not going to work with everyone. And there are going to be some people who it really emotionally messes with. And so obviously as a coach, you see that, well, you have to wait, have to have a method to figure that out. But once you see that, you're like, okay, hey, this isn't working. Like you're just binging on the weekends. Let's let's try something else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's very extremely mental. Um, and we don't know, like, wouldn't it be nice if you could if you could figure out who needs a meal plan versus flexible diet? Yeah, especially because I mean, when you're taking on clients, 
75 percent of the time people say i just i don't care i just want you to tell me exactly what to eat it doesn't matter and 75 percent of those people actually don't <laughs> need that you know so um sometimes that is true but if you can empower somebody to understand macros to therefore create their own meal plan even if they need your help creating it i typically think that's the best route to go i i went through it's just a pendulum swing as a coach of like I did the meal plans. I went, I got on stage that way and then it ended up not working out well after the show. And then I was like, that is not the answer. You have to be super flexible. And then I kind of came back to like, well, you know, this is actually really easy to do and makes people get better results. So I'm kind of swinging in the middle. And I ultimately, I think it's, it's, you know, and, and this is just my opinion. I don't know the, the result of the study. And I do that on purpose when we have these conversations, but, um, I like meal plans. I think they were great as long as it's a collaborative effort. If it's me telling you exactly what to eat um, and not teaching you what's associated because way back in the day when I did a meal plan for a bodybuilding show, it didn't have macros associated with it. It was, I didn't even know how many calories I was eating. I actually had to go back and, and I literally did this. Once I did my show, gained a bunch of weight afterwards, started researching who Lane Norton and Eric Helms were and figuring out what reverse dieting was. And I went down this rabbit hole. I went back to all my prep notes and I calculated my calories through every step to see what I ended up at. Cause I was never told it was just eat this. Oh, we hit a plateau. Stop eating oats in the morning. Okay. <laughs> I'll stop eating oats, you know, um, reduce my carbs. But, um, I think that educational piece is, is a huge point of the meal plan being successful. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's really like the study, the Conlin et al. study. So it was just published like, I don't know, two weeks ago or less. Uh, it's out of Bill Campbell's lab. Lauren Conlin's the lead author. So people should know those two people yeah. uh, a little bit. At least. She's been on the um, podcast a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. So, so good people, right? Good scientists. Um, but the first study that actually compares flexible versus rigid dieting, um, like in body composition terms, and even really in intervention terms, like people were kind of characterizing it before this and trying to figure out when should you use it? What does it mean when people are flexible versus rigid? How does that affect the appetite and things like that? Um, so again, first study, flexible versus rigid, straight up comparison. So they randomized people to one of two groups, flexible dieting, flexible. They actually gave them uh, Sohi Lee's ebook on macronutrient guides, like a beginner's guide to macros. Um, and then the rigid diet, they had a diet plan. Um, and so they took a couple days and figured out their weight maintenance or their caloric maintenance, which, you know, I think they used about three days, which is not perfect, but it, it gives you a good idea. And then they took that maintenance and they cut off 25% of calories, which they've done in previous studies. And the 25% deficit think again, it's a thousand calorie diet. That's 500 calories. That's a good chunk of, of calories, right? So this is not necessarily an easy diet, um, but it's not like, let's see, it's not 1200 calorie diet either for everybody. Uh, so the protein was high, it was like two grams per kilogram or, you know, body weight and protein is essentially what it was. Uh, the, the rest of the calories, because they had, they gave them calories, were split between carbs and fat, like almost evenly, not quite evenly, but pretty much evenly. And the meal plan, which is really interesting, because if you look at the meal plan used in the study, you would say, oh, that's a really good meal plan. Like it had fruit, uh, oats, uh, lean meats, uh, nuts, like eggs, 
dairy, like, like you would look at it and be like, Hey, if I want to get my diet back on track, I just need to feel, follow this meal plan for a week and I'll feel great. Um, so it's a very diverse diet, which was good because sometimes with rigid diets, you get, uh, kind of my micronutrient issues if you do it for too long. Um, but I looked at the diet and I was like, wow, that's really close to what I eat. Um, and it's really good. So they, they dieted for 10 weeks during that period. They took body comps. Um, they didn't quite hit the caloric deficit they're going for. It was more like a 20% deficit than 25. But at the end of the day, um, they basically concluded that the, there was no difference between the two groups, flexible versus rigid in weight loss or fat mass or lean mass. Um, so we have to be a little careful in how we interpret this data. And I didn't get into it too much in the blog, but just because two things are equal doesn't mean they're equivalent. And so there's some statistical stuff that you have to consider, uh, but this is a good start in saying, hey, there are no large differences between a flexible and rigid dieting uh, aspect in body comp. Or, and this is actually pretty interesting too, they measured um, cognitive restraint, which is basically like dietary restraint, like a method to say I can stop eating, right? Uh, disinhibition, which is uh, overeating, essentially. It's like the opposite of stopping from eating, which is overeating. And then hunger. So they gave them a survey every like five weeks. And the idea is that people who have are on a rigid diet have less cognitive restraint. They have more disinhibition. So they eat more, they'll binge or something like that. And their hunger might be higher. Like usually it's higher a little bit. Uh, but again, there were no differences in the, between the group. So that kind of goes against the, the literature a little bit in saying that, you know, this rigid diet isn't detrimental because there were no changes over the 10 weeks of dieting. So, uh, but. Was that consistent after the post-diet phase? Because I saw that they, they also followed them, what, 10 weeks after the diet was done? Yeah. And, and this, this part, I'm not going to lie, it was a little bit odd. Um, because it doesn't really explain, or I could have missed it, um, but it doesn't explain a ton of like what they told them during the post-diet phase. Like if you've been dieting for 10 weeks, they're like, okay, you're done dieting. They're like, okay, now what do I do? Um, and it turns out the flexible group actually gained a little bit of fat-free mass, um, but they didn't change mm -hmm. their diet that much. So like they, their calories went up probably like 200 or 300 or something. But they just gained like two to three pounds of fat-free mass, which we can assume is glycogen. Um, but they weren't eating like way more carbs or anything. So I'm not, I, I looked at that, I kind of analyzed a little bit and I'm like, I'm not sure what's going on there because that's the only difference between the groups, like the only significant difference. Um, Was there any, did they actually have the macros and everything listed? Because the only thing I, other thing I can think of is, if they read the ebook and they learned about macros a little bit and they realized protein's important, the other group didn't, and they stopped the meal plan and their protein consumption dropped, whereas the other group, it consistently stayed up, would that have an effect? Yeah. So again, uh, kind of a stats thing, but the rigid group's protein did drop, but it was still like 1.4 grams per kilogram, um, whereas the flexible dieters group was like 1.8. So, you know, we would rather have that flexible protein, but during that phase, they were the exact same. They're like 2.1. Um, so I'm not sure, but I think something like that probably happened. 
um, where they just learned what to kind of do. Um, whereas maybe the meal plan or the rigid dieters didn't. But again, if you look at the diets and the rigid dieters, it's like, no, that's a really good diet. If you just continued doing that and ate a little more, like you would be fine. In life. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, there's, there's like a few things in my mind that, that I think are beneficial about the rigid plan, not necessarily about having to eat that specific thing every day. But when I, I think sometimes people get a little too flexible and they stray away from those, like what we would call bro foods. And, and with a rigid plan, you're sticking those bro foods. The, the reality is, is the accuracy of the macros you're, you're calculating with those bro foods and those rigid foods is just way better. Like if you, if you're trying to measure and track an apple or chicken breast or rice or oats, it's going to be more accurate than like scanning a fiber one bar and assuming that it's actually not that you can't eat that granola bar that you want to, but we know the label accuracy varies more so than the actual accuracy of a nutrient value inside of a whole foods. Um, so I think that plays a big role. And then, like you said, having a meal plan lined up where it ensures you kind of check all your boxes off because I want to say, I got to look it up because I brought this up before, but I know it was in mass that I, I want to say Eric Helms was the one that reviewed it. It was way back, but it was talking about, um, kind of similar comparing rigid versus flexible and that the flexible diet was actually uh, more uh, promoting health because of the micronutrient diversity. And the whole thing here was like with the rigid plan, the person wasn't getting maybe enough fruit or it was like the same exact over and over again. Whereas the flexible plan, they were like having berries and then one day they were having a banana and then some days they were having steak versus chicken and eggs versus fish. And they were getting this diversity in their diet that helped. Um, it's not making groundbreaking changes to your physique or anything. But um, the point being is if you have a, a rigid plan like this, a quote unquote rigid plan, but you're ensuring like, okay, am I getting my colors? Am I getting my greens? Am I getting my healthy fats? Like you're checking off your boxes. It, and I think you should do that with a flexible diet anyway. But a lot of people miss that point. And with a rigid plan, they're kind of forced into this box of making sure they check off all the boxes for good health, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so that, I think the study you're, you're referring to is um, the study on bodybuilders and basically they compared flexible dieting to meal plan. And they, they found that the, the people who were on a meal plan, like a straight up meal plan, didn't get as many micronutrients, like you said. So I, I that study is definitely linked in the blog. Um, there might be another one, but uh, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's hard to say like rigid dieting is bad or flexible dieting is way better. Like long-term it probably is, but so that you can learn what to eat. Um, you know, some people may need a more rigid diet and some people, like you said, may come to you and say, I just want it. Just give me a plan, man. And then they'll learn how to make changes later. And maybe they don't. And they definitely need that flexibility to, you know, learn to make those behavioral changes. Cause ultimately if you don't change your behavior, you're going to end up right back where you were. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, what is, what do you think is like the, I kind of have my own, but what do you think is like the take home message for people listening that they, they should be pulling from this? Cause you know, studies like this, I think it's always important to hear the opinion of you specifically, cause you have experience with research and coaching because this one kind of equates to, well, they both did well, you know, and it's one of those ones where it, it turns into more of an opinion based conclusion, which is fine, but I always like to make sure we give that before we sign off. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and I would kind of say what you just said, it's, well, the three factor eater and uh, eating questionnaire says that 
mentally, they didn't really change. Um, body composition, I mean, at least during the diet, wasn't different. That doesn't mean it was the same, but that means that there's nothing drastically different. Um, now, it was only 10 weeks, so maybe, you know, these are relatively healthy people. Maybe it, it, it's not good to do long-term, but I mean, looking at the study, I'm like, hey, like if we need to use a rigid diet for 10 weeks or eight weeks or whatever to get going, I'm, I'm okay with it as long as you're not showing any emotional issues. Yeah, I would agree. I think in my experience, uh, like I said before, collaborating to create that rigid plan has, has honestly worked best. I think it eliminates... Um, uncontrolled variables of packaged food or restaurants that we can just take away. It's like, if I can help you create a plan and you understand that it hits your macros and we can repeat it, we can avoid seeing swings and fluctuations on the scale. We can make sure that we're controlling these variables and the measurements of food pretty accurately. So I know it's not a precision issue of, of just not actually hitting your macros um, and keeping f like the real flexibility more around food groups and, you know, like, high carb versus low carb, high fat versus low fat, like what you prefer. Um, do you want to have healthy whole eggs or do you just prefer to have a, a couple slices of bacon with your egg whites? Like, you know, like things like that that are easy to track, but it's flexible. And then on the weekend, if we want to play into a little bit more of the IIFYM thing and maybe you go out or you have some more packed stuff or you have a couple beers, then it's like, that's okay for most people. Um, but I like like starting with the, the principles and education of flexible dieting, but leaning on the meal plan to be the kind of execution, as long as it's like a collaborative thing, I think it works really well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, people see studies like this and they get excited and they say there, there's no difference. Or there's like, look at, look at how bad or good rigid dieting or flexible dieting is. It's like, well, eh, I mean, yeah, one study only tells us a little bit. So mm -hmm. Again, I, I have some more digging to do because I think the ideas behind this rigid dieting idea are a little um, loose, like a little bit looser than what people think. Uh, like, I don't think there's as much evidence for the eating pathology as is stated often by fitness people. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's bring that up. I would agree with that too. And I, th I, and I ultimately think too, like this is just something I throw out there. And this kind of like is going to translate to the next study because I would say the same thing about the next one we're going to go over. But if you just look at people who are pretty lean or, or pretty jacked or like pretty consistent, they have great physiques, a lot of times they eat the same shit every day. Like they repeat their meals quite often. They kind of have their staples. Like even for me, I eat the same thing every day. And the thing that changes is like when I'm not really seriously dieting, when I'm seriously dieting, nothing changes. It's all the same. But like when I'm a little more flexible, it's like, all right, Shannon, what meat do you want to cook tonight? Are we having pork? meat or like steak, chicken, uh, fish. And then I just kind of adjust slightly, which I don't really have to, cause it's like a protein source. The vegetables change, very simple stuff. Um, but like, I think that there's a lot of people who are like that. And it's, and it's funny that some people really, really like to harp on how harmful it is to be rigid and, and so on and so forth, which it's all personal. So I don't think we can really say that indefinitely anyway because it's all individual but there's a lot of people who have great physiques and are very successful with their bodies that they eat the same thing every day so it's like success leaves clues which um is why like going into the next one I, I kind of always felt that way about high carb diets as well it's like man but every really really lean bodybuilder I know and every great physique athlete I know male and female every freakish athlete they tend to eat a lot of carbs and they don't eat a ton of fats. It's like a very common denominator. And then there was like the outliers that tried to like 
speak up and hype the keto diet. And we have enough studies now with keto and performance to show that it's just not probably not the best thing. But, um, but I've always felt like that, like with, with high carbs, it's no, even just like bodybuilders in the nineties and early two thousands, it's all protein and carbs, you know? So, um, which it leads us into the next one. The next question that he's going to be answering with some research is, uh, is it harder for the body to store carbs as fat than it is to store fat as fat? Yeah. Great execution on reading that question. Cause the first time I read it, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is, uh, a good problem to have, right? Because the only reason you should be, uh, storing things as fat is if you're in a surplus, right? So at maintenance, you this is not something you really need to worry about. So then it's like, okay, now if I want to eat a lot of food or I want to eat a little, little bit of extra food, that's the other kind of uh, indicator here. So the research basically says that carbs are not converted to adipose tissue. So I'll use adipose as like body fat, um, as easily as fat is converted to adipose tissue, uh, which kind of makes sense, right? Like carbs have to go through uh, de novo lipogenesis, which is not super efficient. So you have to move some carbons around, you have to go through a couple different pathways, and then fats can just kind of go through the body, be stored, and they're, and they're good to go. Um, a little more complicated, complicated than that, but essentially there's some percentage lost and that percentage is about 10 to 15%. Uh, so with that practically, if you ate a hundred carbs and that was your surplus versus a hundred carbs versus a hundred uh, fat, calorically equated, not grams. Over uh, your maintenance, correct? Yeah, yeah. So basically you eat a hundred extra calories of fat or of carbs. There we go, clean up. It's better. <laughs> yeah. I'm struggling today. Um, 75 to 80% of those carbs are going to be stored as fat, whereas 90 to 95% of that fat is going to be stored as fat. So there's a, like a 10 to 15% trade off there, um, meaning that fat is more easily stored. Um, and there's only one study, maybe two on that. Um, there's an older study from the 80s. And then I linked in the, in the blog, one of my favorite studies is an overfeeding study by Horton, I think it's from 95 or something. Um, but they basically overfed people by 50%, which is a lot, uh, for two weeks and, and figured this, this ratio out, or the 75 to 85% for carbs and 90 to 95% for fat um, storage. So that's, it, it's kind of short and sweet, honestly. Um, I think I prefer carbs, but you know, there's always like, you have to be careful and make sure you get your healthy fats in. And, mm-hmm. um, in our physique and bodybuilding review that I wrote with Holmes and Trexler and Fitch and we went back and forth on it quite a bit, trying to figure out like, what's the lower level of fat that we would really use. And it's about 20% of your calories or about one gram or like 0.5 to 0.75 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, which is pretty um, low. I, yeah, it. I mean, it's pretty low. Um, like it's for a twenty-two hundred calorie diet. That's like forty to fifty grams of fat. Yeah. Um, 
for my body weight right now, because I base it off like when I'm going to deficit, I prefer higher carbs too. And so like I look at like, okay, what's the, I can't go past this point, you know, with that. And for where I'm sitting at, right about 170, uh, I weighed in at 168 point something today, but it's like 38 grams of fat is like the low end, which people would be like, what? It's funny because I posted my macros uh, for a physique update on my story, and I had so many people were like, uh, like, how are you surviving on that low fat? Like, are you are you worried? And I'm like, I'm really, I'm not worried. I mean, nothing's going to happen. I'm just eating more carbs. I could bring up my fats, but then I'd have to get rid of carbs, and I just enjoy carbs. Um, but... I think I, I think this is good because it is short and sweet, but I do have like, I'll let you finish if there's more, but I, I definitely have some like follow-up questions that I think you'll have more theoretical answers for because I don't think you're going to have a study to answer them, but um, I'll let you finish first. Is there anything else with this study that you want to kind of make sure you hammer home before I start picking your brain? Um, no, I, I, again, I think that like, oh, there, so the one other thing that I found while I was doing my research is basically like the type of carbs don't seem to make a difference in whether it's glucose or sucrose. Um, so that's kind of just nice to know. Like the, there's no, if you split out your carbs and you're taking in maybe like some fruits or some, um, you know, more processed carbs, it doesn't really matter. Is there, is there a mechanism for uh, being able to store fruit as uh, muscle glycogen? The only reason I asked that because for a while, and you probably heard this back in the day, where it was like they literally had it, and I don't think you can do this for everybody, but they literally had it down to a point where like you can store, I can't remember what it was off the top of my head, 450 grams of muscle glycogen and you can only store 150 grams of liver glycogen, which is fructose. And so you actually like had this like maximum capacity they believed. And I remember reading that in school and at the time I was just like, oh, that's, I mean, that's the fucking rule for everybody. <laughs> but, um, you know, later on I realized like, well, I'm sure everybody has a different amount of muscle glycogen and, and uh, uh, storage and everybody has probably different size liver. So, you know, um, but like you saying, it doesn't matter. Is there a conversion process where once your liver glycogen is good to go, it starts using fruit, it's just less efficient or. Um, okay. So if we look at the kind of glycolysis uh, pathway, um, glucose and fructose, so glucose and fructose are kind of at different points, um, but they end up in the same place. Mm. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, people used to think because fructose actually inserts lower on the, on the glycolysis chain than glucose does, used to think that like fructose was worse off because it got processed differently or and it took less energy to process. But that isn't, it doesn't seem to matter that much. Um, so basically when you break down carbs, right, you break them down into glucose and the blood, you either use them or you store them as glycogen, right? So you weren't too far off actually with your glycogen numbers. Um, I think the liver, it ranges again by size, but 100 to 250 grams of glycogen, let's say, depending on the size of the person. Um, the muscle, like you have a lot of muscle in your body, right? Um, 300 to 500 grams of glycogen. Um, basically, if you sum those two, it's generally like 400 to six or 700 grams of glycogen can be, can be stored. Um, now there is an effect where if you overfeed, um, you can actually store more glycogen than that for a short period of time. Uh, but it's kind of not, there's not a lot of science behind it. If you look at the old school endurance runners, they used to deplete and then carb load. Right. 
right, to get more carbs. So it's essentially doing that, but they, they found out that you don't actually need to deplete to carb load. You can just carb load, glycogen <laughs> <like a> load. <laughs> that makes it a lot, a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, 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 it does. Um, I was, I, I worked during my postdoc with a, an exercise physiologist who, she was a, an endurance athlete. And I was like, you know, a bodybuilder. And so we just knew like completely different things. And yeah, she, we were talking one day. She's like, yeah, that's not really true anymore. I was like, oh, okay. Huh. <laughs> it's like, good thing I don't have to do that. Yeah, no shit. Um, okay, so so my first question then, uh, theoretically speaking, is this a, um, based on knowing that 75 to 85% um, versus 90 to 95%, being 75 to 85% of carbohydrates are being utilized, correct, versus 90 to 95, I'm sorry, stored, stored, stored. sorry. Um, So is this giving uh, credit or a reason to do uh, like, kind of like the, like, I mean, I remember 3DMJ was the first one I remember being like really for this with like a gaining phase, but going with like, hey, let's go with the actually like pretty damn small de- uh, surplus and just being patient because physiologically speaking, your, your body can only build so much muscle and eating more carbs isn't going to build more muscle. You have to do the work. And if you get enough carbs to support what you're doing, that's enough. Um, but like, does this kind of support that small surplus? Because in my mind, like in this, they're pushing that surplus quite a bit to see what the difference is between what's burned and what's stored versus like, okay, well, if we know this percentage now, can we just basically go into a small surplus knowing that all that is going to be fu- like used to help grow and build muscle and store it as glycogen. And then you don't store fat. It kind of gives credit to the idea of an actual lean gaining phase. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so a little bit, um, I think it's hard to compare just the amount of, of caloric surplus, right? Um, 50%, like if you're eating 2000 calories a day and then you go to 3000, like that's a big difference. Huge. Um, and, and this study that I link in there, they weren't exercising. So that adds a whole nother component on it. Oh yeah. And so we are, um, I'm part of a, a study with Helms and Figure and a couple other people who were doing an overfeeding study um, with two different, like a, a lower amount and then a larger amount. And to try to see like what's optimal. Um, and because of COVID that's like so far pushed back. Um, <laughs> But I think in the grand scheme of things, uh, going with a lower surplus is safer. It's better. It will have you dieting on the back end less, which is good, right? Um, and, you know, you mentioned you can only gain so much muscle at a time. We don't, I don't, we don't even know what that is, but it is very minimal. Because, you know, and, and I agree, and I think that makes sense. And obviously the training factor plays a huge role. But in my mind, it's like, if we had a large surplus and a small surplus, what I would think would happen is both groups, if the training program's the same, protein's the same, all that, I would assume both groups would build the same amount of lean tissue, so the same amount of muscle, and one group would gain more fat. Um, I think the main problem is long-term practically, and this is the only argument I've heard on the side of going faster and it making sense, is the patience factor. For some people, if they don't see the scale moving or if they don't feel their their shirt getting tighter around their shoulders and arms they don't feel like they're doing anything and it's just demotivating you know to not grow to know like hey we're gonna go slow but your gaining phase is gonna take a year you know and and i did that like just recently not that long ago like 2020 um 
and it takes a lot of patience. It's, it is definitely harder than going, you know what, I'm just going to fucking get after it and grow. Um, but again, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to do a pretty well done study and a, a good size, like length study to really see. Cause a lot of times I know even for me, I gain quick at first and then it kind of slows down regardless of how big of a surplus I'm in anyway. Um, so it'd be interesting to see, but to me that that was the first thing that came up. And the second thing was like, and fat loss. Okay, we're not at maintenance. We're not going to surplus. Does this give credit to say that we could potentially diet on more calories? I might be fishing here, but um, diet on more calories if we're on a higher carb approach because that process is less likely to store as fat. So if we create the deficit primarily through fat, we're going to be burning a lot of the carbs we're taking in anyway, and we're going to be using the little bit of fat we have. Is, is that Does that make any sense at all? Is there anything to, to show value in that? So no, but there are other studies that show if you eat more carbs, you generally move more, mm-hmm. right? So now, and we have a neat question next, but um, that kind of gives credence to, okay, let's eat a little more carbs because you're going to move around a little more. You're going to feel a little better. You're going to train a little bit better. Um, but in terms of the the transitionary or the ratios with adipose and fat and carbs. I don't, I don't think it really matters because you're not storing any of it. Mm. Hopefully. Cause you're um, in a deficit. Now, yeah. And, and maybe like, again, this does uh, give you the idea that when you refeed mm-hmm. or when you diet break that you should probably use carbs. So if you go over, it's not, 95% stored as adipose, right? And you should go over with carbs. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you don't, like you get to eat more, but you don't store as much if you accidentally, oops, ate extra 300 calories yeah. or something, right? Yeah. And that's also credence to say that like, you probably don't need those refeeds or diet breaks as often as people like to think. Because if you were pretty depleted when you finally took that, it would probably take a lot before you got to start worrying about that percentage of storage anyway, because you got to refill your glycogen and that could be a good amount of carbs. It might be all the carbs you take on a refeed, but a lot of people think they need a refeed every week or every other week. And a lot of times I see better results of people when they actually wait quite a bit of time. Obviously there's a psychological reason. If somebody's hurting, I'm going to give it to them. But like I've, the more research that's come out on diet breaks and refeeds, the more like sparing I give them. And it just tends to work better as long as they don't need it psychologically. I don't think there's any harm in doing that. Um, the reason I asked that question though about fat loss was because I interviewed, uh, not too long ago, Dr. Joe, uh, Klimzinski, um, really good podcast, but he brought up a study on basically like high fat, low carb, and then high carb, low fat, calories equated, fat loss study in the group with high carbs, low fat, lost more body fat in the process. Um, And one of my first thoughts was this whole idea of de novo lipogenesis just being a more taxing and time consuming process. So the body may be stored less, but being that they were all in a deficit, it probably is what you said. They probably just burned more calories during the study because they had more energy. Yeah. yeah. And I mean... Like, I don't think anybody's ever other, yeah, it's just so hard to see through the, the, the straight deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I don't know if anybody, if we could actually figure that out. Yeah. Um, and it's semantics, right? Like at the end of the day, if like most people would be like, well, I don't give a shit why, if that's going to help me lose more weight faster than I'm in, you know? Um, and there is potential for that. But also if, if you can't adhere to a lower fat diet, 
you know, I'm eating, I'm in the middle of a cut right now and I'm eating 40 grams of fat a day. That's, you know, it's not hard for me to adhere to, but for some people that's damn near impossible. So you have to consider that. And then the other thing to consider, and I told somebody this in my DM when they were asking me about it is I have my date night every Saturday and I'm very loose with what I'm tracking. It's more like calories and just get my protein in. I have plenty of fat on that day. So if we're technically talking on a weekly caloric average or weekly macro average, I'm consuming way more than 40 grams of fat a day. We went to an Italian restaurant last weekend and trust me, I ate three days worth of fat in a single meal. Like it was, <laughs> you know, um, and most people think Italian, they think carbs, but they forget about the cheese, the butter, the oil. Like it's kind of ridiculous. Amazing, but yeah, it's there. Yeah. And, and, and that's why most people have a struggle on a low fat diet is because of all the fat that's hidden everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, like even not getting super lean meat, like, you're like, oh, lean, lean beef, uh, 85, 15 versus 96, four. Yeah. Right. That's a big difference. Like 10 grams of fat per serving. You're like, yeah. whoa. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just harder. Yeah. And the, the, honestly, the key for me is, is I switch from steak to chicken. Like yeah. I love steak, but when I make that switch, it's so easy to stay low. It's just cause with steak, if you want a good steak, you got to have a good amount of fat in there, you know? And it's not that you yeah. can't eat steak. I love steak. But when I, was like, I need to pull something. All right, dude, let's pull fat because I want my carbs, period. Yeah, for but, sure. Um, all right, cool. So the next study is uh, about NEAT. So does your body adapt to NEAT or walking, making your step count less effective at a certain point? Okay, so this is kind of, there's a lot of uh, nuance to this question um, because in total daily energy expenditure, we have a couple of components. So we have basic metabolic rate, which you can't change unless you change your body composition, but even then it doesn't really change. You have the thermic effect of food, which is like 10 to 15% of what you burn in a day. Um, but that doesn't really change that much either. I mean, you eat less, your TEF goes down, but not much. Uh, then you have exercise, right? And there's a lot of studies now to say you can't out-exercise a bad diet and if you want weight loss to occur, you probably need to lower your nutrition uh, pretty soon after you increase your exercise. Right? You can't exercise your weight off. Like it's really, really hard. Um, and the reason for that is because your body adapts. So basically if you increase your exercise, your, your meat or your movement, your, your steps in this case, they drop like a rock, right? If you increase to doing three or four hours of cardio a day. Like you may not realize it, but if you just let your body go and don't like have any managing systems, like a, like a Apple watch or whatever, how you get up and move or count your steps, you'll actually not move very much at all. And so there's a couple of really good studies that have kind of started to create this theory. Um, and it's called the constrained energy theory. And it's by, it was created by Herman Ponzer. And what he basically did was he gave doubly labeled water to a bunch of different tribes across the world that aren't influenced by technology or, um, you know, industry. They, they kind of live like hunter gatherers. Actually, that's exactly how they live. And what he did was he gave them doubly labeled water, wanted to measure their TDEE because they're hunting and gathering all day. They're getting all these steps. Um, they're moving, they're having to forage and all this stuff. Um, and he compared it to kind of like a, a matched kind of Western society group. 
And what he found, and he did it this in a bunch of different tribes, like all over the world. What he found was there wasn't any difference in TDE, even though these hunter-gatherers were like, again, going out and chasing deer and stuff, like, and, and taking food from lions. Um, he has a, a book called Burn, which is really good, uh, where he kind of gets into some stories. But the, the, his papers are also published. And it, it, it basically says that at some point, your body adapts to your activity, whether that's walking, whether that's exercise, whether that's uh, occupation, maybe, like if you have a, a heavy physical occupation, um, you, you'll adapt somehow unless you like really, really, really pay attention to it. Um, and, and it's hard, for sure. Yeah. Well, and even that, I mentioned that one study that I just dug into this morning, actually, where they added cardio versus creating a caloric deficit through food. And the group that added cardio had less effective results because when they added cardio, their knee dropped subconsciously. So again, if you're going to add cardio during a fat loss phase, you probably should be tracking your knee as well. Um, even though, like we said, your TDE goes beyond just walking, but it, you should probably try to keep your step count up. Um, I would even assume like with the thermic effect of food, to be honest with you, that's a bigger percentage than I thought it was for some reason. But um, usually when people create a bigger deficit, they are, start eating more voluminous food, higher fiber foods, more lean proteins. Do you even think that like you would notice any TEF if that's the case? Like when you have more calories, you can get away with more processed foods, which are going to have a lower TEF, thermic effect food. And if you go into a deficit and you start increasing voluminous foods, but then your total calories drop, it probably stays about the same anyway, don't you think? So it does. The only difference you can ever really tell is when somebody goes from like a low protein diet mm. to a high protein diet. And then it's like two to 5%. It's really not much. And in the grand scheme of things, like, okay, uh, 2000 calorie diet, 2% of that's not much. No. So you're like, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, okay. So what, what was like with this model, was there a, um, and I might be jumping ahead so you can, Stop me if I am, okay. but um, was there like a specific number? Because I, I remember reading something. It wasn't a literal study, but it was kind of like a review of a study from exam, and they had like an infographic that kind of talked about the health benefits of, of neat walking, um, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, walking, step count, all that kind of tapered off after 11,000 steps, I think. It was like health increases, and this is not body composition I'm talking about, but it was like health increases yeah. were going up, up, up. Once it hit 8,000, it kind of started to taper off, and then after 11,000, there was no increases in health. So you can walk more than 11,000 steps to burn calories maybe, but you're not going to have better health benefits. But is there some kind of tangible number like that with this caloric expenditure, like a part where it does turn into this constrained model? So I think it's around... None of Ponzer's papers have it in there, but it's buried somewhere else. I think it's around like 20,000 to 25,000 steps. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty lot. high. Yeah. But, um, like, it, you know, if you're talking health, I mean, we see health benefits at like 5,000 steps. Yeah. Like, if you go from two to 5,000, yeah. and then 10,000 is the magical number, but doesn't have a lot of research behind it. It just seems to be a, a nice round number that people like to throw out. Um, and again, uh, more steps are generally better to a point. Um, you'll see some like, I don't know if you ever counted your steps when you're like training in person, but some personal trainers, man, they'll get like 20,000 steps a day oh, yeah. every day of the week. Yep, that was me. Like, Jeez. 
it was a dramatic shift when I went from training people in the gym six days a week, Monday through Saturday, to just being an online coach. It was pretty wild. <laughs> it was a significant change. That's where I had to start setting reminders and going on walks because if I didn't purposely go on walks while I'm on calls or anything, I'd maybe get 5000 a day, maybe, you know. Um, I don't have a dog to walk. I don't have, you know, anything really. Like now that my daughter's getting fast, I got to chase her down. So that adds <laughs> – I get home and I add like three, 4,000 steps probably just in the afternoon chasing around. But um, 20 to 25 was actually bigger than I was expecting. So that's actually a pretty big number. Now you're saying – up until that point, we're probably going to get caloric uh, benefits from a caloric expenditure perspective. Like the, the adaptive thermogenesis point of this doesn't happen until after that 20, 25,000 step count, depending on the individual. Yeah, yeah. So if you think about um, like you're on a diet, right? And let's say you're do- doing cardio twice a week, you're weightlifting a couple times. Um, you generally see changes up to about 20,000 like if you keep everything the same and all you say is, Hey, we're going to go from 8,000 steps to 12,000 steps. You'll see some extra weight loss from me. And then you can ramp it up. But when you get to like around 20, I mean, it might not be 2025. It might be like 15 to 20. Again, can't remember the exact number. And I don't even know if there's much research behind the number, but from experience and, and kind of working with a lot of people who are pushing kind of, the, the neat limit because they're trying to get lean. Mm-hmm. That seems to be around like 20,000. So is there a time element in this? Because like, let's say somebody's only at 15 and they're seeing progress from it, but they stay there for X amount of weeks. We talked about this with uh, metabolic adaptation. Like, you know, we usually start to see it kick in that adaptive process after, I think you said two or three weeks, it starts to kind of catch up from a dieting perspective. Is there any uh, timeline that we can say, because my thought goes there with like, well, okay, stay at 15, you're burning calories, just stay there, you're, you'll be fine, you're not going to hit that adaptive point, but the problem, if you're there for three months, like I would assume at a certain point from a time perspective, you would see that same adaptive process as well, no? So there's a little bit of adaptation in, um, there's like a mechanical adaptation, like you get more efficient, but it's mm. not much, it's like a five percent max um so that's why i'm i'm always hesitant to to say you know we adapt to everything just because like you're gonna have to change something else eventually if you want to keep losing weight um yeah it's hard it's hard to say well and, and i guess to answer my own question if you are stepping if you're at a caloric deficit of blank calories and you're stepping 15,000 steps a day but now you're 10 pounds lighter that's the adaptive part, right? So it's not that the steps aren't working. It's just that you're not in a big enough deficit anymore because you're literally lighter. So you would have to step more or drop more calories, one of the two. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's what a lot of people don't realize when they diet is like, you're a smaller person. If you lose like 30 pounds, that's a lot of calories, you know, yeah. like that you're not carrying anymore or not needing to use to carry. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's actually something I want to bring up more of just a random question that kind of, I thought of it on the first one, but then I forgot to ask it. Um, that study put them in a 25% deficit. I've seen studies where they even put them in like a 35% deficit. I had a conversation with somebody um, who is now working with Trevor on our team. And uh, they were like, well, I tried the Matador thing, you know, and it just, it didn't work at all. And I was like, well, your diet breaks were too high and your deficits weren't low enough. But like a lot of people see Matador, they see deficit refeed 
perfect. That's all I have to do. But they don't realize that those people were in, I, I want to say they were in like a 25 to 35% deficit. It was a pretty big deficit on those deficit weeks. And a lot of people yeah. don't realize that. So they pull 100, 150 calories and they're like, why aren't I losing? Um, because there's this whole mentality around, and it happened when like reverse dieting got really big and the gen pop and the CrossFit world of like, being afraid to diet too hard, you know, to go in too low of a deficit. But the reality is a lot of times you need that to lose weight. And I think people are afraid, but 25% is, I mean, it's a big deficit, but I mean, that's like a, it's going to create a noticeable result. And the problem with going too slow is that you're just dragging the process on. And now you're in a smaller deficit that's easier, but you're also not losing much weight if at all. And you're in that mental state of dieting for way longer. Um, so I guess not really a question, but just like a confirmation that most studies go pretty big on the deficit and that's totally fine for people to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think being in a prolonged diet is, is you have to be careful with that, right? Because that mentally there are some, some issues that can occur. Um, that's not to say you want to go on a thousand calorie crash diet because that's not sustainable, but there's like a, a fine line, you know, what fits like my goals. If I just have to lose 10 pounds, can I go? you know, a pound a week or two pounds a week, get done in five to 10 weeks and get out. Like, am I good with that? Or do I need to lose 30 to 50 pounds? And now we have to take a long-term approach just because that's a lot of weight to lose, mm -hmm. like straight up. Like yeah. it, it is going to take a while. Um, but I think you, that, you know, you have to be careful with, with who you have as a client and then the approaches you take and how long they have to, to diet. Yeah. I agree. And this is why it's important to talk to people about their life. Like one of the questions on our questionnaire is like, do you have any travel or expected things coming up? Because, you know, even for me, I've been dieting for quite a while and it's a long diet. So, if, and I'm not a huge person. So it'd be like, why are you taking so long? Well, it's because I was in Dallas for four days on a batch party and I'm going to be at a wedding, which is a, a four day event. My birthday's this weekend. I'm going out of town. My wife turns 30 soon. I have all these things in the summer that I'm taking somewhat intuitive, but I'm pretty intelligent, intuitive person, diet breaks for. So it's like those things, one, they're going to make me diet longer because they're a speed bump. But two, like the whole mental side of it, like that's my relief. You know, I do that, then I can diet longer because I'm not mentally fatigued from it. And as long as I don't crash and create like a really unhealthy state for myself, I'll be fine. Um, but people just look at the deficit now versus thinking about everything you have coming up, what the challenges may be, all those kind of things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, everybody's a little different, right? That's why we tailor things to people. Exactly. Yep. No pun intended. Um, yeah. Cool. So do you have anything else on this last one? I mean, what's the, what's the conclusion or like the kind of wrap up takeaway point for people? Um, okay. So your body adapts to increase walking or neat at a point because you stop doing other things. Uh, that can be due to it, you throw your, your walking way up. So if you go from like 5,000 to 20,000 steps, you're going to adapt some other way. Um, if you increase your exercise a whole lot, you're going to, you're going to kind of not move as much. Uh, so just kind of be aware of it. And if you need to lose weight and you've gotten your steps way up, like you're going to have to be pretty adamant about doing things proactively. Right. So it's, it's, crazy how adaptive of uh, like a, the body is just so adaptive to everything you do more of one thing it down regulates something else without you realizing it just to balance things out so um the way i always try to tell people is your body's always kind of trying to find homeostasis and when you're chasing a physique goal you're basically fighting your body to leave 
homeostasis. So just be ready for little things like that. And that's why, like you said, you got to have a lot of awareness because some people will be like, well, why isn't the deficit working? It's like, well, let's look at 20 other things that you could be downregulating or, or not realizing or whatever. Um, so there's just a lot to it. The body is pretty, pretty damn crazy and intelligent. Yeah. But. Sure. Cool. We'll wrap it up there, guys. As always, uh, this is our monthly research review, so you can find this in the blog as well. It'll be three separate blogs, so you can go check those out and just read about each individual study and take-home point in, in question um, and get our answers from it. If you would like to do it that way, you go to tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash blog. Um, and other than that, check us out on Instagram. I'll put both of our links or our usernames in the show notes of this podcast so you can learn more from us there. And we will catch you guys next time. Peace.